I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. John Kane is a professor at Long Island Jewish Hospital in New York. His very significant research has led us to many insights regarding schizophrenia. Dr. Kane, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Schizophrenia is an old concept. Let's begin with a bundled question. What do we really mean by schizophrenia, and do we know what brings it on? Well, in terms of defining schizophrenia, we've come to believe that it's a brain disease, probably neurodevelopmental in origin with a very strong genetic component. It may very well not be a single disease, but right now uh, we still use a nosology, dsm 4 nosology to diagnose schizophrenia. Uh, it's shown to be a diagnosis with pretty good validity in terms of predicting treatment response, long-term course, uh, family history, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, the etiology is likely complex, although the genetic factors are the most powerful, and schizophrenia is probably 70% heritable, if you will, but there are many other factors that contribute, and we're we still don't have a really good understanding of some of the gene environment interactions that might play a role in predisposing people to schizophrenia. One current example for, that we might cite is exposure to cannabis, that vulnerable adolescents who may have a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia could be at risk and with uh, heavy cannabis use in terms of triggering a psychotic episode. Again, this is not established beyond doubt, but there is there is enough data to suggest that as a possibility. That's just one example of a potential gene environment interaction. So it's more likely something that one is born with as opposed to getting from a disease or an accident. Yes, absolutely. Um, concordance rates in schizophrenia among monozygotic twins are very high. We've now, the field has identified about a dozen uh, risk genes that seem to be associated with schizophrenia, but they're all genes of so-called small effect. So we really are not in a position at this point to uh, uh, learn very much from the genetics about the pathophysiology of the illness, but at some point, obviously, we hope that will be the case. Is it a lifelong for the duration of one's life? Well, it certainly uh, can have a lifelong impact. I think, uh, I think fortunately, some people can go through a period when the illness is more florid and then it can subside over time so that it may be that later in life people are less disabled and less uh, psychosocially uh, impaired than they might have been earlier. So, But that's obviously a tricky thing because there may be an interaction between the, the subtype of the disease, the treatment that they receive, both pharmacologic and psychosocial and, and what kind of supportive environment they live in and so forth. But, you know, it's a, it's a long-winded answer, but I think that it is a disease that affects people pretty much their entire lives, but maybe to, with different degrees of severity. One often hears of the positive and negative signs of schizophrenia. Could you explain those a little bit, please? Sure. So the positive signs and symptoms are things like delusions, which is a fixed false belief, hallucinations, which is uh, hearing a voice when there's no one speaking. Negative symptoms are, the, the term negative sort of derives from things that, that should be there that are not there, like uh, motivation, pleasure capacity, affect, spontaneity. So the, the positive symptoms are, are, you know, sort of abnormal thoughts, beliefs that really shouldn't be there. The negative symptoms are things that are essentially missing. 
A lot of times people will assume that if the word schizophrenic is used as a label, then there is a psychosis. But I've also heard people question if if one can have negative symptoms of, of schizophrenia, is it necessary, therefore, to be psychotic to be considered schizophrenic? Well, yeah, that's, we, I think we, we would argue that it is necessary to be psychotic. I mean, there are rare patients who just have negative symptoms and whether or not that's really the same disease. But, you know, patients usually who receive a diagnosis of schizophrenia have had some history of positive symptoms somewhere along the line. What is shall we say, involved in the treatment of schizophrenia. Again, people have often asked me if we are actually treating the disease or simply treating the symptoms. Uh, that's an important question. I think we are probably treating the symptoms more than we're treating the disease. Fortunately, the medications that we have can have a very dramatic uh, ameliorative effect on the signs and symptoms of the illness, but they're by no means curative, and patients are left with a lot of psychosocial and vocational disability, even when they're receiving appropriate pharmacotherapy. They also need, I should emphasize, they need psychosocial and vocational treatments as well in order to achieve optimum response. But you know, even with the best combination of modalities, we're still not really curing the illness. So we, you know, in effect, we are treating the symptoms. I think the area where the illness may be most difficult to treat includes the cognitive dysfunction that's associated with this illness and to some extent, the negative symptoms. And there's also a great deal of depression seen in people who are schizophrenic. There certainly can be. There's comorbid depression. There can often be tremendous demoralization. You know, anyone who's developed an illness uh, such as this, which is, you know, a serious illness and can have an impact on one's life, it's, it's, that's a very, that's a difficult thing to accept and to deal with. So demoralization is not, not unusual at all. So is suicide particularly high in this group? Yes, the risk of suicide is estimated to be between 5 and 10% lifetime for people with schizophrenia, and that's often comes as a surprise to, to the general public because they don't, they don't think of schizophrenia as being associated with suicide, but that's, that's obviously quite a high risk. And would they be treated with antidepressants in a, in a usual manner that one would address a suicidality? We would not use antidepressants alone, but we would certainly consider combining antidepressants with antipsychotic agents. Patients, in my opinion, patients with schizophrenia should be treated in it really indefinitely with antipsychotic agents. I would not want to treat someone only with an antidepressant because we'd be concerned that might precipitate a psychosis. But in combination with an antipsychotic, I think it's a very reasonable treatment for depressive symptoms. It's becoming very confusing to a lot of families and, and, and patients because the new antidepressants are, um, excuse me, the new antipsychotics are also being researched for use in depression in, and anxiety disorders. It's yeah. a little confusing. I just would like to hear your comments about it. Is one disease, two diseases, where are we going with this? Well, it's actually, it's not as new as people think because if we, if we look back to drugs like theoridazine, which were used, you know, very, very widely in the 19... 60s and 70s, theoridazine was also used as an anti-anxiety agent, was used in some cases to treat depression, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not, this is not that unusual. And I think there are probably some common pathways that, that are exerting an effect in, in a number of different diseases. For example, we see that antipsychotic agents can work in mania and they can also work in schizophrenia. Does that mean they're the same disease? I don't think so. But it, obviously, research is going to require us to tease these apart. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, the drug effects, you know, some of these drugs have, have really broad broad spectrum effects.
effects. They work in a number of different disorders. We see antipsychotics having a, some effect in autism. We see them having some effect in, in schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, psychotic depression, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's, it's a range of a range of illnesses, and it, but it may be that they all share some commonality, which enables the drugs to exert a, a positive effect. Is there any particular part of the brain that seems to be more associated with the onset or the development of schizophrenia? Yeah, that's a very, that's a complicated, I think that would require more time than we have. I mean, I think uh, we're still struggling with trying to understand some of the localization. I think some of the current thinking is that it, it may be more networks of neurons than it is neurons in a specific region, and that what we're dealing with is the problems in the way some of these neural networks uh, develop, and therefore different brain regions have difficulty communicating with each other in, a, in an appropriate way. So that, that's obviously a focus of a great deal of, of research, because it leads me to the question of someone who's listening to this and maybe there's some schizophrenia in a blood relative and they're looking at children and how does one detect how does one suspect that maybe a schizophrenic problem is developing how how young can you look well it's it's very hard to identify the the signs of this illness in until adolescence as a rule okay. I mean, there are some individuals who can develop signs of schizophrenia at a, at a very, very young age, but it's, it's rare. It is more typical for the signs and symptoms to emerge in late adolescence or early adulthood. And often we do see what are referred to as uh, prodromal signs. And, and by that, we might mean uh, deterioration in school performance, uh, odd ideas, odd beliefs, uh, you know, disturbing thoughts, uh, some suspiciousness, withdrawal from family or friends. Uh, moodiness, changes in sleep pattern, things like that. But you know, these are these are also associated with other conditions like depression, anxiety, so forth. So, you know, any anyone who has a concern about a relative in in that kind of situation really should consult a mental health professional to get some guidance and you know not to jump to any conclusions. But you know, I think one of the challenges that we have nationally is behavioral and emotional problems in children often go unidentified and untreated, and that's, that's a terrible shame. So we really, really need to do a better job of educating the public about you know, seeking help for kids who might be experiencing difficulty either in school or with friends or with family, and, and hopefully if there is a problem, identifying it early enough that we can have, a, have an impact on the, on the course of the illness. So if it's say on the average begins in late adolescence, early the early 20s, something like that, and it's a chronic condition, the implication seems to be that someone might be on medications for the better part of their life. Well, I usually um, tell uh, patients and families that, you know, right now with the state of our knowledge, I'm going to recommend that, you know, we we use this medication uh, for in the, in the foreseeable future, but, you know, I don't know what might happen five or ten years down the road that we might develop some new treatments or what have you and but yeah I think they need to understand that this is a chronic illness and that medication can be very uh, helpful in preventing uh, any recurrence of a psychotic episode and those are the kinds of things that often lead people to be hospitalized or to uh, have to stop working or stop going to school and so it can be extremely disruptive and 
So we, we really want to work with patients and families to engage in some shared decision-making around this issue and and hopefully reach a consensus that the best thing is to stay on the medication. Of course, we want to make the medication as as tolerable as possible. We want to make sure that the person is comfortable with the medicine, that it's not causing any side effects, et cetera, et cetera. But, but yes, it is. I think it does need to be taken on a, a rather indefinite basis. And unfortunately for a lot of people, the, the term itself has a, a Hollywood connotation to it, and it's really not what people see in the movies. It's actually, you know, people can live fairly normal lives given everything if it's properly treated. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it is one of those words that is is often misunderstood. The average layperson actually thinks that schizophrenia means multiple personality disorder, but it, it doesn't. That's a that's a very different illness. But it does. It is a, it is a term that it can is frightening to people, and there there has been some discussion in the field about changing the name. But you know, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the the way to solve the problem. I think the way to solve the problem is for people to be to be educated, for people to work with their clinicians and understand the nature of the illness and not be um, overly influenced by any any of the stigmas that people might associate with different types of mental illness. I think we've come a long way in overcoming some of those stigmas, but we, we still have a ways to go. One of the problems that a lot of people face is the knowledge that they'll be on medications for a long period of time, and they hear, shall we say, conflicting or confusing opinions regarding the differences between the older medications and the newer ones, or sometimes called the typicals and the atypicals. Could you comment a little bit on that, please? Sure. Yeah, that has been a confusing area. I think the, that there are differences in the kinds of side effects that are associated with these drugs. The older drugs tended to cause more neurologic side effects. Not Again, these are classes of drugs. That doesn't mean that all drugs within the class are the same. But as a class, the older drugs tended to cause more neurologic side effects, uh, what we refer to as drug-induced Parkinsonism, which is a slowing of movements or tremor or uh, lack of facial expression. In some cases, uh, abnormal involuntary movements, which could be affect the face or mouth or tongue or extremities, and in a minority of cases could even be persistent. We see far fewer of those side effects with the newer drugs, but with the newer drugs, we're seeing um, more metabolic side effects with, with some of the newer drugs, not all of them. So with, with some of the newer drugs, we've also seen weight gain and changes in, in lipid metabolism and so forth. So, you know, each drug has its own kind of risk-benefit profile. I, I don't think we can necessarily lump all the drugs together and say, you know, this, this group is better than that group. The choices need to be made on an individual basis, and I think doctors have to weigh the evidence. And they have to also discuss with the patient what, you know, what is their preference uh, if a drug might cause a certain side effect, which side effect are they, would, would they be most troubled by, et cetera, et cetera. And these drugs obviously can be used for many years, and statistically most people do fairly well. Yes, I think even, even though there may be side effects, I think if the drugs are administered properly, if they're taken properly, if side effects are monitored and managed appropriately, yes, I think people can do, can do well. But we do have a lot of challenges. The, um, for example, recent data suggests that the average lifespan of people with schizophrenia is, is, is significantly shortened. And it's not just because of suicide. We think it's also because of a higher risk of, of cardiovascular disease. And, and many people with psychiatric illnesses smoke. They might be overweight. They don't get exercise. They don't have a healthy diet. They might not 
follow through with routine medical care, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we have to do a also have to do a, a better job of managing those kinds of risks as well. So it's all the other things, not necessarily just a schizophrenia that's causing the problem. That's right. And we need to be very, very alert to that. I've always had a question in my mind, and I've never really been able to find a, an answer, and I'm not suggesting I hope you have one, but I would love to hear. Why do we have different types of schizophrenia? Why is there a paranoid schizophrenia or a disorganized type of schizophrenia, or are they, are they really the same? We don't really know the answer to that. I mean, there are these different uh, so-called subtypes because patients present with different arrays of signs and symptoms. It still may all be one disease, though, because if we, you know, there are many diseases in medicine, complex diseases that will manifest differently in different people. And that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are different diseases. So, you know, that's something we're still working on. And maybe that schizophrenia will turn out to be multiple illnesses or it may turn out that that's not the case. Is there any association with the high use of stimulants in our society right now with cocaine? Is there any association with the onset of schizophrenia and the use of cocaine? I don't, I don't think so on a large scale. I think this relates back to something we said earlier. There may be people who are vulnerable who, when exposed to certain kinds of drugs or, or substances, might be prone to developing a psychotic reaction. And so I think for people with that kind of vulnerability, we, we certainly recommend that they avoid substances of abuse. But do these drugs like marijuana or cocaine, you know, cause schizophrenia de novo? I think that's not likely. I mean, we can get, we certainly can see a, a, a paranoid psychosis developing with uh, exposure to certain drugs of abuse, but that's not necessarily the same thing as causing schizophrenia. Is there anything particularly exciting on the horizon that people would like to hear about that might help with either the better, a better diagnosis or better treatment? Well, I think the most exciting area is is genetics, but we're still in the very early stages of, of really an extraordinarily extraordinary revolution in our understanding of illness and on its underpinnings. But it's going to take a while to identify the genes that are involved and then do all of the work that will be necessary to connect the genes to the actual uh, pathophysiology of the illness and then ultimately developing better treatments or better prevention strategies. But that, that's clearly the most exciting thing looking ahead into the future. I think in the very short term, I think that we have enormous need for better ways of helping patients to take medication on a regular basis. I think many people with this illness and with many other illnesses have a hard time taking the medication that's prescribed on a regular basis. And so about half of people with schizophrenia over a period of a year or two are going to have a difficult time taking their, their medicine on a regular basis. So we need, I think we need different ways of helping them to administer medication, whether it's long-acting uh, oral formulations or long-acting injectable formulations or patches or uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a in a very important opportunity that we need to take advantage of in the, in, the, in the near term. I think that's very, very critical. And of course, unfortunately, many people who suffer from schizophrenia end up being treated in the, the clinics, which are understaffed and overworked. And we really don't have a, a good system, a good support system to take advantage of the considerable tools that we already have. Yeah. And that applies to the psychosocial treatments as well, that if we, we know that there are treatments that can be very helpful in combination with medication, but, but many patients aren't, don't have access to those treatments. 
John Kane is a professor at Long Island Jewish Hospital in New York City. He has done a great deal of work over the years, devoted his life essentially to schizophrenia. And I want to thank you for your good work, sir. You've helped us a lot with a lot of our patients. And I want to thank you for joining, this, joining us this evening. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be able to be with you. Have a wonderful day.